welcome to Just Ask, the podcast of The Hive Collective, a digital health platform built to empower women to make educated and informed decisions about their health. I'm your co-host, Dr. Heather Quayle, a leading women's and gender-related nurse practitioner. We provide answers to the questions you may not know how to ask by interviewing experts in nursing, medicine, sexual health, and wellness. We started in 2020 with myself and colleague, Dr. Tara Thompson, pharmacist, and now welcome our co-host and leading women's health expert and nurse practitioner, Jackie Piasta. This is a safe space where no question is off limits, and we advocate and encourage listeners to just ask their most intimate questions and to break down the barriers of embarrassment and taboo. I'm Jackie Piasta, your other co-host and fellow Queen Bee of the Hive. Each month, we bring on a new guest that is an expert and healthcare innovator in their respective field. As the healthcare landscape rapidly evolves, we are excited to be on the cutting edge and have decided to evolve the podcast into the Hive Collective, a space that seeks to equip you to better navigate your health journey. To learn more about our new and exciting platform, check out our mission, vision, values, and initiatives as we discuss our rebrand in Season 4, Episode 1. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We're excited you're here and hope you enjoy our show. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us again for the Just Ask podcast. Uh, My name is Tara Thompson. I'm a pharmacist here with my colleague, um, Dr. Heather Quayle, a women's health nurse practitioner. And we have a very amazing, amazing guest today. You guys are going to love hearing from her. Um, Dr. Corinne Men is a board certified OBGYN and Menopause Society certified practitioner. Dr. Men is also a 23-year survivor of breast cancer and premature menopause. She is a bracket carrier and uses her experience to help women navigate their own health challenges. She has dedicated her medical practice to menopause management, the unique healthcare needs of female cancer survivors, and those at high risk for breast cancer. Now practicing exclusively through telehealth, Dr. Men provides women's health consultations throughout the country. She is also a medical advisor and prescribing doctor on Alloy, a menopause telehealth platform. Dr. Men is an active member of the Menopause Society and a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. She is a dedicated advocate and volunteer for the Young Survival Coalition, serving on their Council of Advisors, leading the Provider Survivor Support Group, and serves on the Breast Cancer Alliance Research Grant Committee. So without further ado, I'd love to say hello to Dr. Corinne Men. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Super excited. And I love your mission of encouraging women to just ask and ask and ask until they get the answers they need. So important. Awesome. So I want to start off by saying it's October. So no better person to have than my dear colleague, Dr. Men. It's menopause month as well as, of course, which you all know is breast cancer awareness month. So no more perfect person. Um, She is a fierce advocate. And I am going to encourage all of you to follow her on Instagram. That's how I met her. We haven't met in the IRL in real life yet, but I can't wait to just hug and squeeze her because I ask her a million questions and she has become an amazing friend, colleague, mentor, and she is a force. So I want to kind of just start off by kind of having you explain to our listeners kind of your why, what brought you here? Um, How did you become this fierce, amazing advocate for this? 
Well, mainly through necessity. So um, in a quick nutshell, because my story is pretty long, but and we've got lots to talk about. But basically, back in 2001, when I was 28 years old and a second year OBGYN resident, I felt a, a lump in my breast. Um, I was newly married, starting to think about maybe starting a family um, and just kind of dealing with the, the rigors of OBGYN residency, which we will talk about, you know, we do not get trained in any really menopause care. So, um, and my mom suddenly died of advanced ovarian cancer, which is another long story. We did not know we carried a mutation in our family for the BRCA2 gene at the time. We had no other family history. So after I dealt with her funeral, I was like, I better get this lump checked out. And I did in December of 2001 found out I had stage two ERPR positive HER2 negative breast cancer. I did have some lymph node involvement. I went on to have multiple surgeries, basically a bilateral mastectomy, um, saved some um, eggs prior to chemotherapy, went through six months of chemotherapy, went through premature temporary menopause due to the effects of chemotherapy. So that was menopause number one finishing chemotherapy periods finally came back. Um, my doctors then put me on Lupron to shut down my ovaries again and put me on tamoxifen. Um, and I did that for a period of time, stopped it, was able to get pregnant on my own, luckily. Um, and well, with my husband's help, of course. And then um, after I delivered my baby girl, um, I went back on tamoxifen, this time without the Lupron. Um, and then a few years later, decided to have my ovaries removed, even though at the time I had tested negative for the BRCA gene. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But I just felt like something wasn't right. I just wanted those ovaries out. So ovaries came out third time in menopause. So it was due to that whole experience that I won. Obviously, I was dealing with being a breast cancer survivor, being a young breast cancer survivor, but also dealing with menopause and nobody knew what to do with me, right? Like the breast um, specialists and the oncologists wanted to kill my cancer and cure my cancer, which they did knock on wood. It's been 23 years, but they really didn't know what to do with my premature menopause symptoms. My GYN and myself as a GYN was not trained in menopause or premature menopause, really was just afraid of me because I had breast cancer. So basically, I was left in the lurch. And that's when I found the Menopause Society, became um, you know a certified practitioner, and slowly started to tweak my practice. So that's what I was mostly doing, which was perimenopause, menopause, and breast cancer survivorship. So kind of left the OB world and started like focusing on that really just because I had to figure it out for myself. And I was just seeing more and more women, even, you know, obviously women without breast cancer, just suffering with menopause, getting so much misinformation. Um, and of course, around this time is when the Women's Health Initiative came out. So it was super confusing for all of us. So fast forward now, it's been many, many years, and it's really been um, an evolution. And I've really found, um, you know, a place in doing a lot of patient education. That's my biggest passion. I would do that all day long. Um, but um, but I also see patients now via telehealth in my own private practice and on Alloy, which is, you know, really kind of democratizing <laughs> the ability for women to get access to menopause care and information because all too often, it's my fellow OBGYN colleagues who are sadly the biggest perpetrators of misinformation and 
you know, shout out to the nurse practitioners out there because I have found that the women's health nurse practitioners in particular are doing a much better job than most of my OBGYN colleagues at providing access to quality information on all of this. So bravo to you. <laughs> no, thank you. And I think part of it, I mean, you get down to the root cause of it. So you're a breast cancer survivor and you're a physician. So heck yes, you're going to advocate for yourself. You're going to read everywhere. You're going to know where to read. You're going to know where to go. You're going to know how to find these answers because you're going to just keep doing the deep dive. But when I think of the people that are our listeners, that are the lay people, they don't know where to start. They don't know where to deep dive. They don't know where to go. And my biggest take right now that I'm pushing for on everything in Instagram is every single woman, um, anyone with vulvas, I should say, deserves a discussion around their peri and menopause. I don't care if they choose not to use hormones, but they deserve the discussion and a choice, her body, her choice, you know? Um, so can we dive a little bit into, I mean, your story is so powerful. And the fact that you've gone through this three times, and I'm sure you had to search high and low to get the information, but where do these people even start to tap the surface of where to look? Well, so I think a couple of things, I think, you know, We've got a we've got the general um, kind of menopause and perimenopause population of women who do not have breast cancer, right? And so much of my education that I do on Instagram and talking to my patients is about that. Okay. That you know, I so I think for those women, there are wonderful, really good resources, and we have very, very clear guidelines. The Menopause Society, formerly known as NAMS, North American Menopause Society, has position statements on hormone therapy, on treating the genitourinary syndrome of menopause. They also have a wonderful non-hormonal position statement for women who either choose not to, or they have a true contraindication to hormone therapy. So I think going there and, and getting some of those resources, I know you're very involved in, in the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, ISHWISH, also has wonderful resources for patients. So I think that's a great place to start. And I also think it's very, very important for women to go to their doctor with a prepared list of questions and understand that it may not need, it may not happen at their annual visit. So when they make their appointment for their annual GYN visit, they should at the same time say, I also want to make a separate appointment to discuss my menopause, because then you're giving your doctor like heads up, this woman's got some things she wants to talk about. And also respecting that the way the medical system works is doctors do not have time to do your annual exam, order, you know, any screening tests and talk about the preventative health stuff, and then also do a deep dive in explaining your options. And chances are many of your doctors are probably not well informed. So if you give them the heads up that, hey, I'm coming for my annual, but then I'm coming back and I'm going to pay a separate copay. We're going to respect that's how like the system works. Um, and you need to come prepared to your appointments because what I see happen is women go in and they ask towards the end of the visit, the doctors on the way out the door, they say, ah, you don't need that stuff. It causes breast cancer. Or they give you them some misinformation. Patient leaves defeated and they're told when they leave that, well, her next available is in like nine months, right? So, you know, unfortunately, you've got to be really kind of clever and proactive about this. Um, so that would be the starting point. Okay. And then I'd say for the, the breast cancer survivor, you know, it's it's a separate bucket and it's, in, in, it's actually way more complicated for those women. But I would say the same kind of things should be done, whether it's, you know, 
certainly with your oncologist. So you're going to have your follow-ups with your oncologist on your routine cancer follow-ups, but you may need to make a separate appointment to be like, well, we're going to talk about the cancer today, but I need to have come back. I need you to explain to me, what are we going to do about the side effects of my treatment, whether it be hormonal or surgical radiation, whatever. Um, and you probably have to go in a bit, you, you've got to do your homework before you see your doctors, you know? Absolutely. And I don't, and I don't want to bad mouth any of the OBGYNs or anybody in the world, but if you are not getting the answers that you want, it's time to find someone else. Like it's time to either look at my alloy or look at some of these online platforms that exist out there. Because if you keep going back with symptoms and you keep hearing things, oh, you're fine. It's not important then you need to find another provider. It's how I got so involved with this wish is because every time I would leave the annual exam, is there anything else you want to ask me? And women were asking me about libido problems as I was shutting the door. And it's just, there's women are told all the time, like it's not a problem or just go have a drink and it'll be fine. You know? Um, So that's a huge. And also there's easy answers. You're like, honestly, sexual dysfunction, sexual health issues, it's, it's actually not rocket science. It's actually pretty easy. We've got very, we, there's a stepwise approach. There's the biopsychosocial model of dealing with sexual health. And if your provider isn't aware of it and, and isn't comfortable with it, there are places like at Ishwish or the menopause study where you can look up a qualified menopause practitioner. But I think what happens is there's a menopause and sexual health care vacuum. And so what happens is women then are basically denied access and then they get pushed to fringe offerings, right? So coaches and people promising them the world who are practicing non-evidence-based medicine. So the one thing that your listeners leave today is there's really safe, excellent evidence-based options for all of your menopause symptoms, all of your perimenopausal symptoms and all of your sexual health symptoms. It doesn't need to be complicated. So if it's if it's becoming too complicated from your doctor, then you have to move on because you know what? You're worth it. One of my favorite doctors on social media is Dr. Vonda Wright. She's an orthopedic surgeon and a real midlife women's advocate. And she's constantly saying, ladies, you're worth it. You have to keep pushing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Go ahead. Oh, Tara, go ahead. No, I love that. You're worth it. Um, so I know one of the questions as a pharmacist, I get it all the time, um, is doctors asking me and patients too, I guess, but really it's, it's, it's providers, it's physicians, it's prescribers asking me if we can use vaginal estrogen in a either breast cancer survivor um, or somebody that has the BRCA gene or, or her positive. So can you just clear the air on that? So I can say, listen to this podcast um, and get, get your answer. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, and if patients go to the link in my bio, which we'll talk about at the end, I have a document that I am constantly updating that has literally every professional society's guidance and statements on this. So you had two buckets there. You said one is breast cancer survivors, okay? And this was actually a full lecture at the Menopause Society Conference today. The simple answer is absolutely yes. All breast cancer survivors 
can have their genitourinary syndrome of menopause symptoms treated with some vaginal hormone. There's vaginal estradiol that's FDA approved. There's also a vaginal DHEA, the brand name is Interosa, that's FDA approved for this. So all breast cancer survivors can use it. Yes, even if you're estrogen receptor positive, Yes, even if you're on tamoxifen, and yes, even if you're on an aromatase inhibitors. Let's just remember, vaginal local estrogen is local. It's it's low dose, low potency, designed to treat not only vaginal dryness, right? It's also decreased sensation, decreased lubrication, urinary symptoms, frequent UTIs, urge incontinence, nighttime wakings for to get up to urinate, um, certainly painful sex, which if is not treated can lead to a very significant vicious cycle of pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. Um, so yes, these women can use vaginal estrogen if they're a breast cancer survivor. Um, the asterisk would be is if you are on an aromatase inhibitor, part of our goal for you is to have very low systemic levels of estrogen. So we can still use vaginal estrogen, but in those patients, we would we can tweak it and make sure that we're we're using the lowest dose possible. Because although there is really no significant systemic absorption of vaginal estrogen, we're always going to be the most cautious in aromatase inhibitors. So there's a couple of easy tricks there. One, there's one product called Invexi, which comes in a very low dose form of four microgram form. That would be a lovely option. Intrarosa is vaginal DHEA, it's actually not estrogen and it gets absorbed into the local tissue and converted into estrogen within the cells. That's a great option. And yes, you can use vaginal estrogen cream. In my aromatase inhibitor patients, I'd use probably a lower dose, maybe a half a gram or a gram. And I would instruct them to use it mostly on the vestibule or the outside of the vagina and maybe just up inside the, um, the lower part of the vagina and, you know, the oncologist can keep an eye on their systemic estradiol levels. And we've got lots of data that shows there is no significant rise in levels, you know. So and then women who are just at higher risk of breast cancer, you can use whatever vaginal estrogen product you want. And I always please do not let any provider tell you that a vaginal moisturizer or a vaginal lubricant replaces vaginal estrogen. It simply does not. I say there's a trifecta, a perfect trifecta is what I use myself personally. A vaginal estrogen, lots of different forms, and you can choose any of the FDA approved forms. A vaginal moisturizer is just like we moisturize our face. You can moisturize the skin down there. And then a vaginal lubricant is simply only to decrease friction with any sexual activity, right? So, you know, that's the trifecta, but not one of them replaces the other. I'm a little biased too. Like I, I used to work in breast oncology. So I see it from the perspective of they want the cancer gone. That's all they care about. And that's great. But they don't think about the other ramifications, the menopause, the hormones, the sexual dysfunction. So where I kind of have found that I've aligned, and I know there's a lot of people out there on Instagram saying the same thing is two things. One, your vaginal estrogen, once you start it is until death do you part. I yes. got that from Rachel Rubin. And I say it every single time. It's like, um, she's a fierce beast around that. And, and I agree. But the other thing I also learned, and it was either from you or it was from um, Dr. Kelly Casperson, especially in the breast patients, and it's fantastic is 
don't give them a loading dose. Don't do this 10 or 14 days of estrogen. Just start it off twice weekly and you probably won't see a rise in serum estradiol levels at all um, because a lot of the data I think has said like the peak is right in that first couple weeks. Um, is that pretty much what you yeah, see? And also, yes. And also the thing is, is when you have someone who has very poorly estrogenized, very thin vaginal wall tissue, initially there's going to be a slight uptick and let's just talk about what this uptick means okay less than 20 picograms per milliliter like that's very that's the menopausal range right so any slight increase would be still within the menopausal range there is no data out there no studies that show that there's any you know increase in estradiol levels above menopausal levels okay the, the the vaginal estrogen cream some women use more right so they use more or they use it more frequently all right so that's why we only just say if you're on aromatase inhibitor to just be a little cautious there otherwise you are good to go and one beef that i have with basically all the professional societies from acog to nams to asco is that they talk about let's first start with a vaginal moisturizer okay Whoever wrote that statement never had premature menopause from um, Lupron, aromatase inhibitor, tamoxifen, any of those things, okay? I've lived it. I understand it. I've had women in my office literally sobbing because the vaginal walls and the tissue on the outside has become so poorly estrogenized. They are in severe pain, all right? And so what I say is, and I, this is not what the recommendations say. They all say, start with the vaginal moisturizer. I say, are you waiting for things to get worse? It drives me crazy. I would really much rather start with nice low dose. Like you said, start just twice a week as prevention so that we're not trying to play catch up six months, a year, two years later when their vaginal moisturizer fails. It may moisturize the tissue, but it's going to do nothing to stop the downward decline in tissue quality. Um, so if anything, if you're a breast cancer survivor out there or newly diagnosed, please don't wait until you're really suffering because that sets off more problems. And if we can just be a bit more proactive on the front end, I think women would be more likely to stay on sometimes their life-saving adjuvant endocrine therapies for their breast cancer. I've seen many women want to come off these things because no one's addressing, you know, the side effects, you know, um, and that's really sad because it doesn't need to be that way. It is. Can you touch real briefly on this black box warning that exists on a vaginal estrogen, please, so that our listeners will hear this loud and clear? Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, as is with all sorts of like institutional government agencies, there's not a lot of nuance in sometimes the way they think or the way they do things. Okay. So because of the women's health initiative study, which was the largest study ever done on, you know, hormone therapy in women, and, you know, we can have a whole other episode on that. And I'm sure you've done this before, but um, there was some concerns um, really, we know that these concerns have all been mostly walked back of an increased risk of breast cancer, cardiac disease, dementia. And so the FDA decided to slap a black ox warning on any product that contains estrogen, including vaginal estrogen. 
even though every professional, every medical society, every guideline says that vaginal estrogen does not cause any of those things because it's only treating the genital urinary tissue. But unfortunately, women get their vaginal estrogen cream or their little insert or their vaginal ring. And there's this label that says it can cause dementia, breast cancer, heart attacks, death. It's literally like insane that this is still happening. And for your listeners to know, the Menopause Society petitions the FDA to have this label removed. And it was denied. And I, I, I looked at the what the Menopause Society wrote and you know what the FDA's response is. And it's nothing short of just, just I, I actually, misogyny, just not caring about women's health. It literally is nonsensical. So mm-hmm. take the black box little label, bring it to your fireplace, use it as a fire starter this fall, because that's all that label <laughs> is good for. Okay. It's, it's really bad, you know? Um, And it it should make women very angry. There, there are women, there's doctors out there, Dr. Rachel Rubin, Dr. Sharon Malone, the chief medical advisor at Alloy, lots of wonderful professionals out there that are really trying to push the FDA to remove this label because not only does it not apply to any vaginal estrogen, it doesn't even apply to systemic hormone therapy because the label is using data from the Women's Health Initiative that the original investigators have all walked back on. But yet the FDA is 20 years behind the times and still has not caught up with this information. Absolutely. And the problem is, is like they went, they told ACOG the reason they weren't going to take the labeling off is there wasn't enough studies. But like you mentioned, there is a big grassroots effort um, to get the labeling removed. And I think we actually have the amount of studies now. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that it's not going to be 20 years and I'll, we'll see it in our lifetime come off. And I think it's good for, you know, your listeners to wear, I believe in the UK right now, vaginal estrogen is now available over the counter. Yeah. UK is a lot, a lot more ahead of us, especially around menopause care too, um, in a lot of things, but that's, that's, that's a whole other day's topic. Okay. So so I, oh, go ahead, Tara. Well, I just had like a formulation because I'm a, I'm, I'm a compounding pharmacist research and development. And sometimes we have to make alternative formulations for patients who maybe can't take the cream or can't do the suppository, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So the mindset behind using something, if someone is super like, I'm not using vaginal estrogen, 100%, I'm not prescribing it to my patients that are maybe breast cancer survivors. Let's just take that for an example, just that subset. I have actually suggested or recommended sometimes that they use an ointment base or an oil base just because of the if, if you're worried about absorption, which shouldn't get there, we're just targeting local effect, estrogen receptors right there local at the mucosa or what's left of it, um, using an ointment base or an anhydrous, so not water containing base, just to make sure that the estrogen stays right there and it doesn't move. Um, they've been a little bit more amenable to that. So just as an option, I know, it, you know, it's a different path you have to go down, um, but Um, What are your thoughts on using something that perhaps? I mean, listen, sometimes I do 
I will, you know, um, order a compounded version of an estradiol cream in a certain base, a Versa base or something moisturizing if women find that they're sensitive to the ingredients or they don't like, you know, some women ask that why does the estrace cream have like propylene glycol or some other things. And so I respect those women's wishes, but I do want patients to understand that they really do not need to be afraid. We have so many vaginal FDA approved um, estrogen or DHEA, the Interosa products, they are safe. So yes, if you have an allergic you know, reaction or reason why you need to compound it, 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 it's not unreasonable, but the reality is there, you should not fear systemic levels of your estradiol being raised. It doesn't happen. It's safe. Um, and, and even ASCO, American Society for Clinical Oncology, in their guidelines say that, yes, you can use it. The problem is, is that many, many oncologists are just simply not up to date and they also have very limited amounts of time with their patients. And so it's easier for them to just tell you to use a vaginal moisturizer or some lube and send you on your way because it just takes a little bit longer to talk to patients about it. Absolutely. And they, like I said, the, their biggest concern is getting the cancer off. That is what they're there for. And that's why we need more trained providers to hear this. Um, so I know that we're going to be asked this in all of our questions, and this could be a whole other podcast, but can patients that have a breast cancer history use systemic hormones? Um, like I said, this could be an hour long, but I just kind of want them to hear some of the nuances and where to look if this is even an option for them. Yes. Listen, First of all, it's very important that breast cancer patients first treat their breast cancer. Okay. You need to have your primary treatment for breast cancer and, you know, understanding that breast cancer is a unique um, and very individualized disease for every woman, just like your fingerprint is unique. So is your breast cancer diagnosis, whether your hormone receptor positive or negative, all sorts of other factors, lymph node status, your age, all of these things. Okay. So, you know, I think the first thing is you need to get that treated. And I think that for women who are experiencing, you know, early menopause and you're still in the midst of treatment, the main message I want you to know is one, you need to speak to your oncologist about how they're going to manage your menopause symptoms while you're taking your your treatment, whether it's chemotherapy or adjuvant endocrine therapy, like an aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen. And also understand that there is a stepwise approach to looking at which hormone endocrine treatment is appropriate for you and make sure you're asking if you're not tolerating it because of early menopause symptoms, then you need to say, well, do, is there an alternative that I can try, right? So that's number one. Um, and number two, is there, while you're doing that therapy, there there are non-hormonal options you can do for your systemic symptoms of menopause, and you could always use vaginal estrogen. Once you complete your therapy, regardless of what your hormone therapy or your, your hormone receptor status is, that is when you need to then go in and speak with your oncologist and at least nine times out of 10, probably, they're not gonna be super helpful with this, but you need to advocate for yourself and say, okay, I've completed my, my treatment. I've got now the rest of my life to live. What are my options for, 
for hormone therapy if I'm dealing with one menopausal symptoms. And number two, I'm concerned about the health risks of often premature menopause or just the preventative benefits that I might get from some sort of menopausal hormone therapy in menopause. Most will say, no, absolutely not. But number one, oncologists are not your boss. <laughs> They're not gatekeepers. They're very good. They should be very good at shared decision-making and talking about risks versus benefits because they do it every single day when they're helping patients decide, here's the risk or benefits to this chemotherapy or to this endocrine therapy or to this surgical option. And there should be the same approach when we're talking about survivorship, right? And if anybody tells you that there's no data on hormone therapy after breast cancer, they're not telling you the true story. There's over 25 studies, not all of them the best studies or randomized controlled studies or the largest, but there is data. So there is, and I'll put a link in, and we can put a link into the end of the show here um, to an excellent review paper that was published in the Cancer Journal by Dr. Avram Blooming last May as well as his book, Estrogen Matters. So I always tell patients, start there, read that book. You'll understand the data around using menopausal hormone therapy after breast cancer diagnosis. What the data basically says in a nutshell is that there really are no studies except for one, which I can discuss, that showed an increased risk of recurrence or death. Most of the 25 studies, again, of varying quality and size, show that either no increased risk of recurrence or decreased mortality um, or decreased risk of recurrence, okay? So there is data. It's not perfect data, and we're never going to have perfect data on this. There is one randomized controlled study that did show an increase in local recurrence or contralateral um new breast cancer in the other breast in women who had intact breasts. They stopped the study early. The study at the 10-year mark, 10-year mark, they looked back, those women never had increased risk of death or distant recurrence. And the big caveat to that study is they did not require intake mammograms on these women before entering the study. Okay? That's a huge problem because the only thing they found was in the first two years, they saw an uptick in local recurrence in breast tissue, which makes many wonder, was that already there? Okay, likely so. So we've got one outlying study and 25 others, and we've got over 20 reviews of these 25 studies. Um, and so I believe women deserve at least a discussion on this is what the data says that for it, it, it may not be dangerous and you may have this as an option and we need to balance, you know, the benefits that you might get from hormone therapy against any risks of having, you know, a, a, a recurrence of your breast cancer. And I think breast cancer survivors, we've been through a lot and we've had to weigh lots of decisions. This is another decision that we're intelligent enough to make when we are given access to information and to just be told, no, there's no data is actually lying to patients. It's not true. There is data. It's not perfect data, 
but there's data out there. You can always have vaginal estrogen and your systemic hormone therapy options. You have them. You have them. You can consider taking it as long as you have proper counseling. If you have a hard time finding someone to give you that counseling, I do that. There are other doctors and nurse practitioners, practitioners out there who are knowledgeable on that. I'm actually thinking of like making a consortium of them because it's kind of like the underground railroad. <laughs> we really literally need to gather, you know, doctors and other providers to, you know, around the country who are willing to actually at least inform and have this conversation with breast cancer survivors. Cause I'm just tired of them not having access to the basic information. So I will tell patients out there that I, in consultation with my oncologist, um, have decided to start. I'm on a low dose estradiol patch and I take progesterone at night and I use vaginal estrogen. I started it many years after kind of finishing my, my breast cancer treatment and mainly because it took me that long to get knowledgeable myself on it. Um, and I'm comfortable with my decision. And that's something that everyone is going to need to do, you know, kind of for themselves. Um, and the other thing I will say is that you know, there are non-hormonal options to treat hot flashes and night sweats and sleep. And so you should at the very least be offered that along with some type of vaginal hormone. And you should be able to have the discussion of systemic hormone therapy because you're more than just your breasts. You're also your heart and your, your brains and your joints and your bones and your sexual health and your mental health. So Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, we're going to link a lot of the resources you've talked about in here. Um, I want to kind of just end with talking a little bit about what was the latest and greatest. You just came back from the menopause society. Um, I know there were some things out there around breast cancer survivorship and some other things, but what kind of pearls can you bring us back that, that were just enlightening and awesome? Sure. I mean, oh my goodness, there's so much. And I'm going to be doing a lot of recaps over the next couple of weeks on my Instagram. But I'd say the theme was personalized medicine and um, precision oncology was the first day's theme. So I think this idea that we have to personalize, one, our screening of women, right? So we have to personalize when we screen you for breast cancer, for colon cancer, um, and for cervical cancer. Um, and that women, you know, a couple of pearls, um, by age 30, you should have a discussion with your doctor or your provider about what your own personal risk for breast cancer is. Okay. It's not just family history. There are, um, standard, um, models, risk assessment models that can be done. Tyler, uh, Tyra Cusick is one of them, the Gale model where they can look at and say, what is your risk? And then that will help inform you of when you should start your screening and how you should be screened. So, you know, that's not being done for most patients. Most one in four women have a, um, one of four women meet the criteria for getting genetic testing to see if they carry a mutation that would raise their risk of breast cancer, not just BRCA1 and 2. There's a whole host of mutations out there, but less than 10% of those one in four women are getting access to genetic testing. So you need to demand a review of your full family history periodically, at least, you know, when you first see your provider and every couple of years, because your family history changes. Um, the next pearl is that if you were tested for BRCA mutation or any genetic testing, or your family member was 
prior to 2013, you must get update testing. I'm a living example of this. In 2001, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. No one wanted to do genetic testing on me. Ridiculous, I know. A few years later, they finally did it and I was negative. It didn't sit well with me. So I, you know, years later in like 2014, I said to my oncologist, like, hey, I think I need update testing. It's like, yeah, you probably don't need it. You know, la, la, la. Lo and behold, prior to 2013, the large rearrangement of the BRCA1 and 2 gene was not included in the standard panel. And also before 2013, multi-gene panel testing of all these other genes like PAL2, ATM, check, there's tons of them, were not standard of care. So if your family member or you had testing before, then you must get it updated because I found out I carried the BRCA2 mutation and hence I can now have my family members tested. My brother's positive. I've got a cousin positive. My daughter's positive. Okay. That is impacting how we manage, you know, ourselves. So that was a big pearl. And I think this idea of personalization carried through to things like colon cancer screening that should start at 45. Um, and that our discussion on menopausal hormone therapy after a breast cancer diagnosis or BRCA1 and 2 pre-vivors who have not had breast cancer, those women can have access to menopausal hormone therapy. So this idea of black and white, estrogen bad, estrogen good, all that stuff is out the window. It's all about being personalized. And the only way to get personalized care is to be well-informed about your own health and you know, um, you've got to demand that your doctor's personalizing their care to you and not just giving you knee-jerk um, reactions or gatekeeping, you know, kind of behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where, where would, where would somebody, where would a patient who's listening, perhaps, would they ask their, like, OBGYN or if, if they can get this kind of genetic testing or is that a good place to start if they don't have an oncologist? You don't need an oncologist for this. Your internal medicine doctor, your primary care provider, your, your, you know, your OBGYN, you know, you should say, Hey, I want to know, I want a personalized risk assessment for breast cancer. These are things that primary care doctors should be doing in OBGYNs. And you just say, Hey, I think I have some red flags for, you know, um, for a higher risk of breast cancer, can you refer me for genetic testing? And that should be done. We don't expect these primary care providers or OBGYNs to be doing that in their office. There's excellent genetic counselors out there. You can consult with them. They'll review your full history and tell you whether you should be, you know, tested or not. Um, so you don't need an oncologist, you know, for that. And, um, and then the other thing is, any listeners out there who experienced premature menopause prior to the age of natural menopause, prior to the age of 51, please understand that any risks, benefits, associations, anything that you hear talking about in the menopause space does not apply to you. Premature menopause means you need replacement therapy. If we removed your thyroid, we'd replace your thyroid. If we remove your ovaries or you go through menopause early for other reasons, we should re be replacing your hormones, period. So that's, you know, another thing that was, you know, discussed at length at the conference. Awesome. Awesome. Wow. Thank you so much. I, I just feel like this has been 
such great information and I like almost want to listen to it twice just to get just to get more more morsels out of that so um Dr. Min I know you know we're we're sort of out of time today and I want to respect everyone's time so thank you so much for for being here for sharing your knowledge this is a topic of conversation that I feel like there's so many question marks for the general population, even for us healthcare providers that are out here, you know, working with these patients daily and and sometimes don't don't know what to tell them. Um, just hearing it from you really guides a lot of that. So um, I know on behalf of Heather and, and myself, we 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 thank you. We appreciate your what you're doing, your work in the field, and and just your dedication to the profession and um, to these patients. Um, and being their advocate as well, encouraging them to be advocates for their own body, but you also being there and 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 speaking up for them. And um, so we want to thank you so much for being here today. And um, that's uh, I, I do want to ask if you'll provide um, for our listeners where can they find you? Um, can what uh, social media handles do you have? Where can they find you? What resources do you potentially have available that they can take a look at? If you'll let us know that. Sure. Yeah. So my Instagram is Dr. Men OBGYN. So follow me there. Also, I'm a medical advisor and a prescriber at Alloy and myalloy.com has really good resources as well as on their social media and their website. So lots of great, you know, good evidence-based information there. Um, and um, if you go to the link in my bio on my Instagram, my link tree has tons of links to a lot of what we've discussed um, out there. Um, I'll also direct you to, um, I don't have like a big YouTube channel, but if you look me up, Dr. Menubichuan on YouTube, you'll see I do have a curated list of excellent webinars um, that I've either done or I've done with Alloy that have like some leading experts like Kelly Casperson, Dr. Mary Clara Haver, Dr. Avram Blooming, and a host of others. So I think those are some good places to go. And then the book Estrogen Matters, right? So, um, and then we mentioned NAMS and Ishwish. So, you know, take a deep dive there. Um, stay tuned. The next two weeks, I'm going to be doing lots of videos on summaries of all of the lectures I heard at the Menopause Society. And of course, follow Heather and her amazing social media. And thank you so much for having me. It's, um, remember, it. this stuff is not rocket science. You deserve access to basic information and it really doesn't have to be scary or complicated. Thank you. You are amazing. Big, yeah. big love. Can't wait to meet you in the IRL and happy menopause month and happy breast cancer month to everybody out there. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening to the Just Ask podcast. And thank you for our amazing panelists today and every day. Feel free to contact us publicly or privately with your questions and thoughts. We do not provide medical advice, but we can point you in the right direction and provide resources. You can learn more about the topics we've discussed in this episode by viewing the show notes for this podcast and following us at Just Ask. ATL on Facebook and Instagram. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, Google, Amazon, and iHeartRadio. Please make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. If you found value in this discussion, please share this podcast with friends or leave a rating on iTunes. 
Thanks again for listening. We can't wait for you to join us for the next show.